so excited to be here with you guys. So excited about what God has for us this morning. Uh, my name is Mark. I'm one of the pastors on staff here, and um, it's good to be with you guys. What a great day. Happy Mother's Day to all of you. We appreciate you so much. We are in the book of Mark. We are in the sixth chapter of Mark. We're going to be covering verses 1 through 13 today. The book of Mark, chapter 6, verses 1 through 13. If you can turn there in your Bibles, that would be great. We'll read those verses and then we'll pray. Mark 6, starting in verse 1. Jesus went out from there, there being Capernaum, and he came into his hometown, his hometown being Nazareth. And his disciples, of course, followed him. And when Sabbath had came, he began to teach like he always does in the synagogue. And the many listeners were astonished. And they said this, where did this man get these things? And what is this wisdom given to him? And such miracles as these performed by his hands. Is not this just the carpenter? Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary? brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon, are not his sisters also here with us? And they took offense at him, and Jesus said to them, a prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and among his own relatives and in his own household. And he could do no miracle there except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. And he wondered at their unbelief, and he was going around the villages teaching Verse 7, so he summoned the twelve and began to send them out in pairs. And he gave them authority over the unclean spirits, and he instructed them that they should take nothing for their journey except a mere staff, no bread, no bag, no money for their belt or in their belt, but to wear sandals, not shoes, sandals. And he added, do not put on two tunics, for one is enough. And he said to them, wherever you enter a house, stay there until you leave town. And any place that does not receive you or listen to you, As you go out from there, shake the dust off the soles of your feet for a testimony against them. And they went out and preached that men should repent. And they were casting out many demons and were anointing with oil many sick people and healing them. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this special day. And we thank you for all the special women that you have blessed us with. Lord, may your hand continue to rest upon them and upon their families and upon their role as women and as mothers and grandmothers. We're so thankful for them. Bless them, Lord. Lord, we thank You for Your Word. Give us strength and courage to be obedient to it, Lord, that we would give You permission to have Your way with us this morning. In Jesus' name, and everybody said, Amen. Anybody heard of uh, Dwight Moody, D.L. Moody? Yeah, many of us probably have. He was born in 1837 and died in 1899. He founded a lot of things, a couple of them which were the Moody Bible Institute and Moody Publishing, amongst other things. And a certain individual who really um, was an avid listener of D.L. Moody was critical to D.L. Moody of his grammar and he reprimanded him for it. To which Moody replied with this reply. He says, My dear fellow, I wish my grammar were better. I wish I had a better education, but I'm using all the grammar I have for the glory of God. Are you doing as much with yours? That's a chunk of information right there, right? What a great quote by D.L. Moody. Here's our outline for this morning. So we have two stanzas this morning that we're going to cover. The first one is verses 1 through 6, right? That's our first stanza. 
Jesus returns to Nazareth. And is he a hometown hero or a hometown zero? And then we're going to talk about something called Call the Carpenter. They recognize him as being just a carpenter. And then the astonishing results of that encounter. And then the second stanza, which is verses 7 through 13, Jesus sends. So he returns in the first six verses, but then in the next seven verses, he sends out his helpers, his disciples, his apostles. And there's some things that they can't take. There are some things that they can take. And then there's some PR that they have to do. And that stands for preaching repentance, not public relations. Right? And we all know when you preach repentance, that might not be the best way for public relations, but it's what God's called them to, and it's what He calls us to. Okay? So I will try to keep those up long enough and go back and forth so if you're taking notes, you can get those written down. So the first uh, chunk, Jesus returns. Let's read again Mark 6, verses 1 through 6. Jesus went out from Capernaum. He comes to Nazareth, and His disciples are there. And the Sabbath comes, and He goes to the synagogue... And there's many people listening, and they're astonished, but not for the right reasons. Where did this man get these things from? What is this wisdom given to him? And such miracles as these performed by his hands. Is not this just the carpenter, the son of Mary, and all of his brothers and sisters? Aren't they here also? He's just one of us. And they took offense at him, and Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and among his own relatives and in his own household. And he could do no miracle there except he laid his hands on a few sick people and he healed them. And he wondered at their unbelief. He was amazed. He was bewildered. He was astonished at their unbelief. And he was going around the villages teaching. So 1A is hometown hero or zero. That's what we're on right now. Jesus comes back to Nazareth. And a year before what we're reading this morning, a year prior, he had been rejected by the very same people. So he comes back to this place, the synagogue where he was one year prior evicted. In fact, his very life was in danger. Look at this. Luke records it this way. A year ago, here's what happened in this very same synagogue. All the people in the synagogue were filled with rage when Jesus was preaching one year prior. And they got up and they drove him out of the city and they led him to the brow of a hill of their city that they had built in order to throw him down the cliff. Wow! But Jesus went his way through their midst. I joked in the first two services, you know, I did sales for about 25 years of my life, and this only happened to me three times. I thought I was doing pretty good. Just kidding, it only happened to me once. But, uh, you know, it's funny, in sales, I always felt like in sales, that, that, that's, um, that's kind of indicative of what God calls us to, Right? And so anytime I got rejected or thrown out, I just thought I was being Christ-like in my behavior. There's a saying in sales, if you haven't been escorted out of a few buildings, you're not doing your job. I've been escorted out of a few buildings. I'm not offended at all. And that's what's happening here. What an act of grace on Jesus' part to give the people another opportunity to hear His Word. Another opportunity to believe in Him. Another opportunity to be saved. He's so gracious. He's so loving. He's so patient. And yet, their hearts were still hard. I've been guilty of that, and I'm sure many of you have been guilty of that as well. We harden our hearts, and we harden our hearts, and we harden our hearts, and Jesus just keeps coming back because He loves us and cares for us, and He pursues us. But this time, a year later, in Mark 6, they don't evict Him out of the synagogue. They simply disregard Him. They don't even take Him seriously. He was ministering to a people group that knew Him well, This was his hometown. What was their problem? 
Why were they unable to trust him and experience the wonders of his power and the wonders of his grace that so many other people had? They thought that they really knew him. He had been their neighbor for 30 years. They had seen him work in the carpenter's shop and appeared to be just another Nazarene. They could not explain him. And so they reject him. Do we reject everything that we cannot explain? Imagine if we rejected everything we could not explain. I have a wife. (laughs) Yeah, thank you. And you know, there's jokes about men understanding their wives, right? I don't understand everything about my wife, but I'm so glad I married her. 28 years, besides giving my life to the Lord, giving my life to my wife is the best thing that could ever happen to me. Still trying to figure that woman out, right men? Okay, so there's a lot of jokes about men understanding women, right? So that's just a joke. I'm so glad I don't have to explain everything about my wife for me to give my life to her, for her to give her life to me, and she's still trying to figure me out as well. Imagine if we rejected everything that we could not explain. And that's what was happening with Jesus. And some of us are still doing that. We're trying to figure things out. There's a saying called familiarity breeds what? Contempt. Do you know how long that saying goes back to? The year 2 B.C. It's a long time. And Aesop wrote a fable to illustrate it. In his fable, there's a fox that had never seen a lion. And when he first met the lion, the fox was nearly frightened to death. At their second meeting, the fox was not frightened quite as much, and on the third one, they just had a chat. Familiarity was breeding contempt between those two, or for the fox towards the lion. And so Aesop concluded that familiarity makes even the most frightening things seem quite harmless. And sometimes we engage the Lord that way, don't we? In the book of Proverbs, which is one of the wisdom books, in Proverbs 1, verse 7, it says, The fear of the Lord is what? The beginning of wisdom. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And right after that it says, but fools despise instruction. The saying of familiarity breeds contempt needs to be taken with a grain of salt. Familiarity breeds contempt only with contemptible things or among contemptible people. The contempt shown by the Nazarenes said nothing about Jesus Christ, but everything about the people who showed contempt towards Him. Does that happen with us? Does familiarity as a believer, as a Christian, as a follower of Christ, does that breed contempt for you in your life? Let me define what contempt means. It's a lack of fear or respect for something or someone that we should have fear and respect for. Does familiarity breed contempt for you in your walk with Jesus? Do we come and we listen to worship songs that we've heard before and we're singing the words, but we're in contempt on some level? We're not really paying attention to this person that we should fear and respect the way He, Jesus, God, needs us to fear and respect Him. I think we're guilty of that. And we come to church and it's like, oh, I've read through Mark 6 before, and you know, it's like we're looking at our watch. That we're... It happens in the church, folks. It happens to us so easily. And like that, we can go down a wrong path because familiarity breeds contempt. And we can slip just like that. And the enemy sees that opportunity when we slip and he steps in between us and our Lord. We have to be careful of that. We have to fight familiarity breeding contempt in our lives. Are you engaging Jesus for who he is? Or are you missing something? 
That was 1A. Now we're in 1B. Call the carpenter. Look at verses 2 and 3. The Sabbath, he's teaching in the synagogue, and the listeners are astonished. Where did he get these things? What is this wisdom? And such miracles as these performed by his hands. And the very next verse says what? Is not this the carpenter? They're looking at him doing things with his hands that he's not supposed to be doing. Aren't you supposed to be a carpenter? Aren't you supposed to be making something with those hands? A carpenter was indeed a respected craft or trade in that day, but nobody expected a carpenter to do miracles with his hands or to teach profound truths in the synagogue. Look at 1 Corinthians 1. Turn to your right of the book of Mark and go to 1 Corinthians 1. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, Romans, and then 1 Corinthians. First Corinthians one, starting at verse twenty six through thirty one. Church, Paul writes, consider your calling. That there were not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble. But God has chosen the foolish things, us, of the world to shame the wise. And God has chosen the weak things, us, of the world to shame the things which are strong. And the base things, us, of the world and despised. And the despised God has chosen. That's us. The things that are not, that's us. So that He may nullify the things that are. So that no one of us may boast before God. But by His doing you are in Christ who became to us wisdom from God and righteousness from God and sanctification from God, and we were redeemed because of Him from God, so that, just as it is written, let him who boasts, boast only in the Lord. And so God uses a carpenter, and He uses us to do incredible things. And it was only two chapters ago in Mark 4 where Jesus talked about the mustard seed. Just give me a little bit of this, and I can do incredible things with it. Carpenter in the Greek is tekton, T-E-K-T-O-N. It's a builder. A carpenter is a builder. Listen to this. Someone who constructs by combining materials and parts to make a coherent whole. Oh, Jesus is a carpenter. Oh, he's a carpenter. Look at Matthew 13.55. In this rendition of Matthew, it says, Is not this the carpenter's son? So Jesus is both a carpenter and so is his daddy. Both his earthly father and his heavenly father are builders of things. What is it that Jesus came to build as a carpenter? What is it? The church. He came to build the church out of those individual parts. He came to build us individually, our individual parts to build a component called the church to make us to build a kingdom that he has come to, to build. In Mark chapter 1, he says the kingdom of God is at hand. And so Jesus is indeed a carpenter. And so he's building us individually. And I'll, I've said this before, and I'll probably say it over and over and over again. We get really too personal sometimes with our walk with Jesus. Yes, God needs and wants and desires a personal relationship with us, but we are a component of something called the church because he's a builder, he's a carpenter, right? So he can advance his kingdom because that's what God has come to do. That's what we're called to. I hope you have a great walk with the Lord. But boy, you're part of something bigger than that. You're part of a church and you're part of a kingdom, which is a unity of churches. I said this last service. I didn't say it last night, and I should have. There's a good chance if you have a memory verse or one of your go-to verses, there's a good chance it's about your personal walk with the Lord. 
It's probably not a uh, it's probably not a verse about church unity, and it's probably not a church about church kingdom about church kingdom stuff. It's probably just personal. And that's where we start. But how many of us memorize verses about church unity or about kingdom building? It's interesting. But that's what God is doing here. Okay? Look at Matthew 16, 18 and 19. He says, I also say to you that you are Peter. And upon this rock I will build my church. And the gates of hell will not overpower it. It will give you, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven. Wow! I think too often we as a church in, in our culture, and we're, you know, it's, it's tricky to be the church in, in our day and age, right? And so sometimes we kind of back up on our heels. That's not what Jesus is about, man. Jesus is fierce, and He calls us to fierce action for Him. To be fierce for Him, not fearful because of a world that doesn't enjoy us or our own hometown that wants to reject us. Look at Ephesians 4. A little bit more to the right of Corinthians, you'll find Ephesians, Galatians, Ephesians. Look at Ephesians 4. What a great word from the Lord for us as a church. Ephesians 4, verses 11 through 16. And so He gave, He gave some as apostles, some as prophets, some as evangelists, some as pastors, some as teachers. Why? For the equipping of the saints, for the work of service. Why? To the building, to the building up of the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God and we become mature to the measure of the stature which we find in the fullness of Christ. As a result, we are no longer to be children tossed here and there by waves and carried around by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, by the craftiness and deceitful scheming. But, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in all aspects into Him who is the head of this body, that's Christ, from whom the whole body, being fitted and held together by what every joint supplies, according to the proper working of each individual part, causes the growth of the body for the building up of itself in love. Wow, tall, tall order. So exciting. That was 1B, the carpenter. 1C, the astonishment or the astonishing results. Look at verses 5 and 6, back in Mark chapter 6, verses 5 and 6. He couldn't do a miracle there except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and he healed them. And he wondered at their unbelief. He was astonished. He was amazed. He was bewildered. Blew his mind. I imagine if I were Jesus and somebody's not encountering me for who I am, it would probably blow my mind too. Right? Doesn't that make sense? Makes sense. Instead of them being astonished by his work of power, he's astonished by their work of unbelief. Because I think when we unbelieve, it takes a lot of work to not believe. So instead of us being astonished by his work of power, he's astonished by their work of unbelief. How do those scales tip in our lives? How do those scales tip in our lives as Christians, as followers of Jesus? Are we astonished by His works of power? 
Or is he astonished by our lack of faith and lack of belief? Doesn't it seem like we do this often? It's like, oh God, you're incredible, you're so great. And I just want to keep this high, you know, I want to keep riding that high, that spiritual high. And then all the balance goes back over here and he's astonished, like, oh my gosh, just yesterday we were over here, now you're over here, right? And sometimes that's the way it is in our walk with the Lord. It's this back and forth thing. And so oftentimes, instead of hanging in there and being tenacious, we retreat, we back up. But we're warned in Scripture, Hebrews 3.12. I've shared this Scripture before as well. Hebrews 3.12 says, Take heed, church. Take warning. Take care. Pay attention. Lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief in departing from the living God. God takes our belief or our unbelief seriously. God takes our unbelief seriously. Shouldn't we also? Listen to this. Fascinating. Anybody heard of Charles Darwin? Not our biggest fan, right? (laughs) I love when Darwin quotes Scripture and he has no idea he's doing it. Check this out. He said that belief was the most complete of all distinctions between man and lower animals. If this observation is true, it suggests that lack of faith on man's part puts him on the same level as animals. Really? That's in Scripture? Yeah. Let me share with you. Check it out. It's in Jude 1, verse 10. It's also, write this down if you want to look, 2 Peter 2.12. 2 Peter 2.12. These men revile the things which they do not understand, the things that they refuse to believe, and the things which they know by instinct, like unreasoning animals. These things, they are destroyed by them. Darwin was absolutely right. When we don't have faith, when we don't put our faith and trust in God, we become like animals. The people of Nazareth, Jesus' hometown, were offended at him, which literally means that they stumbled over him. Jesus likes to stumble us, doesn't he? He was certainly a stone of stumbling to them because of their unbelief. 1 Peter 2.8 says this. We know this verse. It's in Isaiah. It's also in Romans. A stone of stumbling. And see, it's, and when it's all caps like that, that means it's, it's, uh, it's referring to the Old Testament as a quote from prophecy. A stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, for they stumble because they are disobedient to the Word. That's why they stumble. And to this doom they were also appointed. When our disobedience is revealed by the truth of God's Word, it stops us in our tracks, doesn't it? And it causes us to stumble and we're offended by that. Because we, like, re- like animals, just want to keep doing our thing. This great wisdom and power that was given to Jesus came from His Father. He had no learned education. He had never traveled. He had never been to university. He was a carpenter. He humbled Himself. And he made himself of no reputation, and he came to minister. What does it mean to minister? Does anybody know what the word minister means? It means to serve. The word minister means to serve. To the degree that I'm a minister of this church, kind of a more formal term, we say pastor, same thing, right? I'm here to serve you. That's my job. I get to serve you guys. And you make it so easy, and I'm so thankful. He came to minister. 
but they refuse to believe in him because he's just a carpenter. He has a mom and a dad. He's got brothers and sisters. Okay, well, what about the opposite? What if the opposite were true? What if he had no pedigree? What if there were no mother, no brother, brothers or sisters, no father? Perhaps then, if those things weren't existent, perhaps then they would believe in him. Oh, there's a scripture for that too, right? Look at John 9, 29 and 30. This is what unbelief does to us. No matter how we like it or don't like it, when we choose to unbelieve, we choose to unbelieve. We know that God has spoken to Moses. These are the the, the religious leaders because he had just healed a blind man. He says, we know that God has spoken to Moses, but as for this man, Jesus, we don't know where he's from. So you got the people in Mark, now you got the people in John. Two entirely different extremes, right? The man, I love the man's response. He said, well, here's an amazing thing. Right? Like, don't lose me in the picture here. Like, guys, pay attention. Here's the amazing thing, that you do not know where he is from, and yet he opened my eyes. Right? And so in our context of Mark chapter 6, Jesus has this resume, right? He's got family, brothers and sisters, and he's got this job as a carpenter. We don't believe. Okay. And in John, it's like, we don't know anything about him. We don't believe. Matthew Henry says this about belief, or unbelief. He says, Obstinate unbelief will never want for excuses. Obstinate unbelief will never lack for excuses. We can find ways to unbelieve like there's no tomorrow when we resist God. And so clearly, when that's the case, Jesus is just astounded. It's like, oh, what, else, what else do I got to do, right? For us to believe and for us to trust. Do you know that only twice in the gospel record, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, do we find Jesus marveling? Only twice. One of them here in Mark chapter 6. The other one can be found, it's the same story in Luke 7, 9. It's not on the screen either. Luke 7, 9 or Matthew 8, 10. It's the Roman centurion when his servant was healed. And Jesus said, never have I seen faith like this even amongst my own people of the Israelites. So in Mark, he's got unbelief from his own people and then in this other passage, Luke 7, 9, the centurion, he's got belief off the charts for, from a Gentile. In spite of all this, Jesus did some good things among them, as we read in Mark chapter 6, verses 5 and 6, where while he could do no miracle there, he did lay his hands on a few sick people, and he healed them. But he was amazed at their unbelief and he went around and continued to teach in the villages. He still did some good things. Our Lord is kind to us and to others even when we're ungrateful and we resist him. He just pursues us and he pursues us and he pursues us and I'm so thankful. And the lesson there is sometimes when we cannot do good where we want, we must do it where we can. When we cannot do good where we want, then we have to do good where we can because some people will just resist. So that's the first stanza. Now we're in the second stanza, verses 7 through 13. Mark chapter 6, 7 through 13. Let's read those verses. And so he summons the twelve, and he begins to send them out in pairs. And he gives them authority over the unclean spirits. And he instructed them that they should take nothing for their journey except a mere staff, no bread, no bag, no money in their belt, but to wear sandals, not shoes. And he added, do not put on two tunics, in other words, just take one, the one on your, on your back. And he said to them, wherever you enter a house, stay there until you leave town. Any place that does not receive you or listen to you as you go out from there 
shake the dust off the soles of your feet for a testimony against them. And they went out and preached that men should repent. The heart of the gospel message. And they were casting out many demons and were anointing with oil many sick people and healing them. The twelve would not be surprised at what Jesus is doing, calling them to send them out. Go back to Mark chapter 3. We've referred this many times over the last uh, couple months that we've been in the book of Mark. Mark 3, verses 13, 14, and 15. So the disciples knew back then that this day was coming for them to be sent. In verse 13, when Jesus was at the mountain, and arguably he was praying to figure out which 12, right? And so he summoned those who he wanted, and they came, and he appointed 12 so that. Why did he appoint them? Why did they follow him? Why did he teach and train them? So that they would be with him and he could send them out to preach. And then he gives them authority to cast out demons. And so this is what's happening in Mark 6, verse 7 through 13. This is what they've been waiting for for a couple of chapters, whatever period of time that was. And so his purpose was to teach them and train them so that they might assist him and eventually be able to take his place when he returned to the Father. That's what Jesus does with us, right? He spends time with us. We spend time with him so he can equip us and train us so that he can send us just like he sent them. What about you? How and now? How and now? How and now? How can you assist our Lord in the work that he has for us to do? How can you assist the Lord? Now's the time. And many of us in this church are doing that already. Church doesn't, God doesn't need certain things done so we figure out where to serve in church. It's not why. And the church is not, you know, so messed up that we just need workers. We need it because that's part of our growth. It's part of our obedience as being a called people to assist Him in the work that He's called us to do. And so we should, all of us, be wrestling with that. How can I assist in advancing His kingdom, much like those disciples? That's why He called them, and it's why He sent them. So we're called to assist and to be sent on His behalf. It's powerful. Before sending them out, He reaffirmed the authority that He told them about in Mark chapter 3. He reaffirms that here in Mark chapter 6. He reaffirmed their authority to heal and to cast out demons and to preach the word, and he gave them very specific instructions. They had, up to this point, they had received so that they might give. They had learned that they might teach. Think about this. At this moment in Mark chapter 6, how accomplished were these men? How accomplished were they? God's calling them. He's passing that baton to 12 men that are a motley crew of messed up men on some level, right? Not too different from me, not too different from you. How accomplished were they? Scripture doesn't record that they finished their seminary classes that they had, right? It doesn't record that, that Jesus had taken them through the basic doctrines of following Jesusship. Nothing like that, right? And the ones that passed got to go, and the ones that failed didn't get to go. They were sent, listen to this, they were sent according to their present ability and capacity. They were sent according to their present ability and capacity. They were sent exactly as they were, who they were. Whatever they had is what they had. Their present ability and capacity is what they were sent with. No credentials, 
No pass or fail stuff. Their, their present ability and capacity is how God used them. And arguably, they were all at different maturity levels, I would imagine. Any further improvements upon their walk with Christ would have to be made afterward. It's time to go. Look at 2 Corinthians chapter 12. Also to the right, 2 Corinthians chapter 12. Verses 7 through 10. Because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, for this reason, to keep me from exalting myself. This is what happens when we wait. We're trying to exalt ourselves. There was given me a thorn in the flesh, a messenger from Satan, Paul writes, to torment me. Why? To keep me from exalting myself. Concerning this, I implored the Lord three times for it to leave me. This is how he replied, my grace is sufficient for you. My power is perfected in your weakness. And so he replies this way, most gladly therefore, I will rather than boast about my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may dwell in me. Therefore I am now well content with weaknesses, with insults, with distresses, with persecutions, with difficulties, for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then I am strong through Him. God can do so much with so little. And to the degree that I'm even remotely effective, I'm proof of that. And I just replaced another guy who didn't have the credentials either. You know, Pastor John, is you know, he just gave what he had. He's like, all right, it's my present ability and capacity. And he came and he was obedient and I'm right on the heels. It's fantastic. It's just so fantastic. So that's the intro to Jesus' sins. And we have a couple things and we're going to wind this down. 2A, I can't take it. These are the things that they can't take. When he sends them, he says, don't take this. He instructed them that they should take nothing. Go back to Mark 6. When he summons them and he sends them out, in verse 8, he instructed them and said, take nothing except a staff, sandals, right? What else did they get? And a tunic. Like, really? I got a staff. I'm not sure, you know, a stick. I don't know what to do with that, but I guess that'll come in handy. Jesus must know, right? I got one shirt instead of two. Like, two's not like over the top clothing-wise. Right? And sandals instead of shoes. That's all they can take. Don't take anything except that. Why? Because Jesus wanted them to be adequately supplied, (laughs) but not to the point of ceasing to live by faith. He never wants us to cease by living by faith. How true it is that our stuff sometimes can hinder us from doing His work more faith-filled or more faithfully and more effectively because we're not doing it with enough faith. We're not relying on Him enough. And so He wants them to never cease to live by faith. And so He shapes that when He sends them. Maybe we have some stuff that hinders us today from doing the Lord's work. And perhaps the Lord is presently removing some things in your life to make you more effective for Him. I don't know. That's what they can't take. What can they take? What does it say? In verse 7 it says, He sent them in pairs. He tells them what they can't take. What can they take? 
What's the first thing? What did he give them? He sent them in pairs and gave them what? Authority. That's what they can take. You don't get to take a bunch of other stuff, but you can take my authority. Wow. We can take his authority. He gives us authority. That's what we get to take with us. Jesus gives us authority over the things and the, and, the, and, the, and the issues that are in front of us, the challenges that are before us. God gives us His authority. We can do anything with that authority. It's incredible. He commissions them to attack the devil's kingdom, to cast out demons, and He empowered them to do so. What's the second thing that He gave them? Anybody know? He sent them out how? By themselves? In pairs. He gives them authority and He gives them a partner, a ministry partner. Look at Ecclesiastes 4, 9 and 12, 9 through 12. We know this verse. Two are better than one. Because they have a good return for their labor. If either of them falls, the other will lift up his companion. Woe to the one who falls when there is not another to lift him up. Furthermore, if two lie down together, they keep warm, but how can one be warm alone? And if one can overpower him who is alone, two can resist him. And I love the way this ends. A cord of three strands is not quickly torn apart. We try to do too much of the Lord's work by ourselves. I like the saying that even... Even the Lone Ranger had Tonto. Right? Like, that's cute, right? We just do so many things alone. And in that aloneness, we're just weak and we can't accomplish the things that we're meant to accomplish. And some of us need to take that pride and flush it and say, I need help. I need a partner. I need to, I need to get connected with somebody. My very life, my very spiritual life is at stake. Amen? They would not only help each other, they would learn from each other. And lastly, the disciples preach repentance. That's 2C, 2 letter C. He says, go and preach repentance. Repent. The Greek word is metaneo. And it's to have a change of self. Our life is a life of repentance. We repent when we come to the Lord, and then we repent while we're with the Lord because there's so many things we just need to repent of. And so what, what it means is to have a change of self. That means to change our heart and our mind. And it abandons former dispositions. What's the disposition? It's those ways in which we think and the ways in which we act. And so when we repent, we have to abandon the way we think and the way that we act. And it results in a new self, a new behavior, and regret over former dispositions. True repentance which is at the heart of the gospel message, results in a new heart and a new way of living. A new heart and a new way of living. Sometimes we try to just take care of the way of living, but we don't take care of the heart. And if we don't take care of the heart, we're going to go back to that way of living. Make sense? And so true repentance requires that we do both. We consider how we live and we consider our heart and our mind and we repent so that our living and our thought process is in line with God's will. Amen? I'm done. Happy Mother's Day. I'm going to pray. Um, Brian's going to come up and lead us in a closing song. And then, of course, our prayer team will be available to your right, my left. 
Um, and if it's okay with you guys, I'm going to sneak out after I pray um, to go spend time with my family. Um, they're not expecting me. I didn't think I was going to be able to make it, but I'm going to do that. So don't look for me afterwards. I'm going to be gone. Let me pray. Lord, thank you. We love you so much. We thank you for your word. Thank you for this church. We love wrestling with your word. God, give us strength to be obedient. Lord, thank you for these wonderful women. Bless them this day. We're so grateful for them. Lord, we want to be amazed by your great work and your great power. And Lord, we hope that you're not amazed by our unbelief. And to the degree that that happens, Lord, help us. Lord, too many of us are doing this thing alone. And we need a ministry partner. We need people around us. Show us what that looks like. Thank you for your love. Thank you for your grace. In Jesus' name, and everybody said, Amen. Happy Mother's Day. Good to see you guys.